0: Welcome to episode three of Forwards, Backwards, and Upside Down.
1: He knows old stuff.
0: She knows new stuff.
1: It's actually our fourth episode, but that's okay. I finally <laughs> yeah. watched Black Panther, so we are making this a Africa-centric, Wakandan-inspired episode.
0: Yeah, and we'll hopefully my math will improve as uh, the episode goes on.
1: All right, so this week in the news, uh, today, April 7th, is the 25th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, uh, which took place in 1994. Over 100 days, um, over 800,000 individuals lost their lives in the small African country of Rwanda, former Belgian colony. Um, It's sort of one of the quintessential events of the last 30 odd years in terms of how we view both the international community's responsibility in civil conflict, how we view uh, the possibility of that level of violence in a country in such a short period of time. Um, And it's really sort of in so many ways, constantly bringing back to the idea of the Rwandan genocide, even discussions of Syria, Myanmar, et cetera. Really, a, a, a really important point uh, in, in international affairs.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were, um, we've talked about, right, the idea of the, the Westphalian nation state and, you know, the responsibility uh, or, you know, the nature of the 20th century as this, um, this century of genocide. I mean, that was one of the best classes I took in high school, right? It was a class that examined the different genocides of the 20th century, and then also really tried to ask the question of why now, right? We, there, there are uh, multiple instances of genocidal killings, genocides, and also, you know, these massive wars and things in pre-20th century history. But the 20th century history is such a much more dramatic collection of them. Um, and in many ways, the Rwandan genocide... Um, in addition to the Holocaust are the two that honestly stand out to me, right? The, the speed of the Rwanda genocide, the brutality of it, right? And then the fact that much of the um, violence is carried out, you know, by not so much an organization, uh, but, you know, these, these violent mobs. You have, um, you know, the, I, I remember when we learned about the, the boxes of machetes that get delivered, uh, and just that image has always stuck with me. And so, what I find very interesting is, is the, the other half of it uh, that I find very interesting with the genocide was, is the way that they have reconciled the, you know, the grass courts and things like that. So, Michelle, I think maybe you could talk more about that in terms of the context of it uh, as an event that, you know, how they moved forward on it and how it still influences the world today.
1: Yeah, so I think in in the immediate aftermath of the genocide, there's this desire to have this international tribunal. It's in Tanzania. It's, like, really looking at the top brass, the individuals who are... Because it's it's seen
0: as such an international failure, right, in many ways. Exactly. And
1: there's, there's a sense of, like, the UN failed to prevent it, and so the UN kind of comes in. This is before the International Criminal Court is developed. Um, At the the time that they're trying to produce the tribunal, there's conflict continuing into Democratic Republic of Congo, um, really spewing out into into the the region itself. And I think a lot of people found the international tribunal uh, a little bit of a failure. It was very focused on the top individuals, some who weren't really in court, but then they couldn't hold the court unless the people were physically there. And I think the country decided to find its own way to deal with the fact this had been neighbor on neighbor violence and that unlike some other large scale genocides where there was really a military or organizational component to the violence and that it was mostly carried out by members of the armed forces, members of militias, this was really a country trying to grapple with the sort of human-on-human level that this violence had taken place. And so they created these systems of hard labor as a consequence um, for uh, going through these national court systems. And what has occurred now, 25 years later, is a lot of these individuals who were part of the genocide have finished their hard labor and are moving back into communities, the same communities that they were from originally, and it is definitely used as an example of how a country can kind of move forward, and it's, there There are complexities to uh, Rwanda's current political situation, for sure, but um, there were a lot of fears that when these 10, 15, 20, 25 year prison sentences and hard labor sentences have been completed that the country would turn to chaos and that hasn't happened and I think that that's um really an example of how one um a country can deal itself at times with its own problems I think one of the critiques of the international criminal court is it's kind of an imposition um on countries and their ability to do justice and I think in this example Rwanda was able to uh, provide not perfect justice, but a system of justice after such a devastating conflict. Um, and uh, I think a lot of countries could could really use that example, um, particularly sort of this um, these these hard labor kind of farms that are you know in the same communities that they're from, and sort of it's a, it's an integrated system. It's not a banished system. Um, and and I it always felt a little human to me after such a devastating devastating conflict.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is, um, on, on so many levels, you're absolutely correct, devastating. I think just the, the events that transpired and, and the, the numerous failures. Um, but it, it, it um, hopefully, uh, you know, it, it does seem to at least, you know, being one of the most recent genocides, we, interestingly, right, the 20th century has not, or excuse me, the 21st century, math's still not great, hasn't really... Um, seen a lot of genocides, so, right? Maybe in some ways, perhaps Rwanda shows that, uh, and then, you know, the events in the um, former Yugoslavia, right, both show that, uh, you know, finally, the, maybe the international community has figured some things out and, and, and found ways to prevent this kind of killing. Although, right, the, the Rohingya, of course, um, you know, shed some Unfortunate failures again. But that, of course, right, has been part about warming around the definition itself, right, of genocide, um, which, you know, has these triggers in law. Um, elsewhere in Africa, right, but in a very different part of the world, um, events have been occurring. Michelle, why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: All right, so in the North African country of Algeria, um, they have uh, the president since uh, the late 90s, I believe, 1999, so about
0: 20 yep, years.
1: Yeah. Um, Butaflika, which is one of my favorite names of a head of state, though he is no longer head of state, yeah, uh, has resigned. Um, this is quite a big deal for two reasons. One is there has been a real wave in many African democracies uh to oust their leader but the the way they're talking about it is actually changing and this may be a reflection of the arab spring so algeria really didn't experience the arab it's spring, not, no. as its neighbors libya and egypt and morocco and tunisia really did um, And many reasons of that is they were still grappling with uh, the civil war in the late 90s, or in the 90s itself. I think it believes in 91. Um, And in that way, sort of the chaos of the Arab Spring, I think Algeria has a different history than a lot of those other countries. Um, It had a brutal civil war fighting the French for independence. Um,
0: yeah. yeah, rough one. Yeah, it's, uh, the Algerian Civil War was, yeah, 91 to 2002, technically. So a full 10 years yeah. uh, of conflict.
1: And I think what is different is in the Arab Spring, it was very focused on getting leaders out of power. And the new kind of phrase that Algeria is really grappling with is not about regime change. It's about system change. So, um, as many people have kind of heard, uh, Bouteflika really hasn't been, uh, physically in power. Um, there are rumors of his various levels of capa- mental and physical capacity, mm-hmm. um, over the last few years. And so really the country has been led by this group of elites called the, le pouvoir, the power. And the protests are less about him resigning and more about changing that top structure, le pouvoir. And this is sort of an example that's been coming up in a couple different, uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo is another example where people are not necessarily like, okay, we've had a presidential change. There's a resignation of the head of state, but we want more. We don't want to just replace one man with another man yeah. system
0: yeah it's you know cutting off one head of the hydra doesn't do much um, and so what do you think um will transpire in Algeria? What do you think of the next uh, steps here if you want to take a guess
1: um I hope they host an election um and i what I am very curious of is in doing this election, if there's enough international tension i mean Algeria is not a country, many global um news outlets is going to be focused on. However, I will say that both Algeria and Sudan, and neighbors in the in North Africa, are going through mm-hmm. similar cases. And I'm curious if the international community can kind of put those two together and push for um, sort of the system change in both at the same time. Um, because the protests are very similar, the issues are very similar. Um, and I actually have hope that that may be what works And if it was just Algeria on its own. Um, sort of similar to the Arab Spring, where kind of as, as this becomes a cascading issue, it gets more attention, more people involved. Um, so I hope that they have free and fair elections um, that can really kind of change yeah. the status quo. I,
0: I, have you heard the, the sort of the other new one of the names of this revolution? I, th- I think it's really, um, it's lovely, right? The Smile Revolution, right? So this, the you know, reading more about it, you know, I see that, you know, it's, it's been largely peaceful, which is quite unique uh, for Algeria. And then also it's largely been led by by millennials, right? People who did not experience the so-called the black decade, right? That 10 year long civil war. Um, and so, right, it's been, it's been peaceful, right? Um, one of the reasons I think why it's been so peaceful is there's a much more active role of women, right? I, specifically on um, on Women's Day, uh, they, handing flowers to police officers and women all day long was one of their things. They've distributed water bottles, right? They've volunteered for things. They've cleaned up um, after their own demonstrations, right? So it's, it's, you know, there's not been much rioting. It's sort of been this, this peaceful uh, set of protests, which are, you know, unique for a country that has been rife with civil war over the last 50 or so years.
1: Yeah, I think I think the millennial part of it and the the smile revolution. I th- this is an interesting change of pace, um, and I think You're very welcome. Oh, absolutely, and it's I I'm curious. I I would suspect. I don't really know that these protests are trying to distance themselves from the Arab Spring, which had also a peaceful start but in certain cases got a little bit more violent um and i i think the woman comment is very very interesting because i think a lot of people point to the success of the most successful of the arab spring was tunisia and part of tunisia's success was the involvement and participation of women um and using that kind of as a catalyst an example um I, I would be very curious if if that's part of the strategy. If there's even a strategy, um, I know these are quite coordinated um, protests trying to really change the the system.
0: Yeah, and um, speaking, you know, now of the power of, of um, women. You know, I, I still have, we you know Michelle and I um, aren't big movie theater uh, in theater people. You know, we like to see movies more at home. And so we haven't seen Captain Marvel yet, which has um, a badass woman leading the way. But we did finally get Michelle to watch um, everyone's 2018 superhero thriller that doesn't involve 29, 39 different superheroes. This one, just a few, right? Black Panther, um, you know, certainly a a hallmark movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Largely with um, black and African leads, um, another billion dollar film, you know, incredibly popular overseas, um, first one to win an uh, Academy Award, right, for the costuming. Um, and so, Michelle, you know, it was really fun watching this movie with you, especially because you brought up certain things that I and you know, other people I had chatted with still hadn't really thought about. And so um, I'd love to hear, again, your sort of unique perspective on it, because uh, I think it's a great discussion point for the film.
1: Yeah, I um I had heard all these crazy great things about Black Panther, and I was really excited. The costumes are brilliant. Uh, I think the film is very well done, um, but I think I have some immediate responses to it, which, based on other commentary I've seen, is a little bit different, and that is really viewing it as this African nation that has this, like, almost two-faced view, so to the world, they're a third world country that doesn't have anything to offer, no, not receiving any aid, doesn't do any international trade and privately, um, they're this super high tech with this incredibly powerful resource. Um, And I can't help but wonder how, how that Wakanda could possibly show its face at the African Union pretending it was in the same economic development situation as its fellow African nations. And I think the film doesn't, the film talks about Wakandan's relationship to, at one point they're talking about how they have their war dogs in um, London, New York, and Hong Kong, which my immediate response is I couldn't understand how Hong Kong was one of the three chosen ones, just... Uh, based on unless it was some sort of Chinese connection, um, but uh, it it's sort but, of you
0: know spies in international cities. You know they they're alluded as having other war dogs, other places, and things like that. But but you're right, right? The movie, despite being right set in Africa, uh, we see not a lot of of the of Wakanda's neighbors, right? You know we don't even know its necessary location. Although it looks to be perhaps, you know, in Central or Africa, right, with this, this blending of the different um, sort of, uh, you know, the, what, the five tribes of Wakanda, right, each seem to be slightly stereotyped, um, you know, African, uh, you know, sub, sub-geographical regions, right, you, know, you have the sort of turban-wearing more North Africans, uh, the, you know, the river tribe, the mining tribe, right? Different, each sort of have these different costumes that seem to allude to a certain African region. Um, but yeah, you're right. Africa itself seems, you know, again, I thought, well, you thought what you brought up was so interesting, right? Was the first, you know, at the end of the movie, right, you have the Wakandan Outreach Centers, right? And the first one's going to be in Oakland, California. Which is, to <laughs> me,
1: so <laughs> ridiculous because the country that, I mean, the U.S., almost the way I responded to that is the U.S. has chosen it has the resources to offer that sort of institute in a city like Oakland and it's chosen for for various reasons that uh of the complexity of kind of the the cultural socioeconomic situation in the United States but I I can't help but think that like basic electricity needs are not in Oakland they're in variety of countries across Africa who, between power outages and just lack of basic electricity, that the ability of, what is that, um, the element that they're mining?
0: Uh, Vibranium.
1: Vibranium. I mean, the revolutionary ability for vibranium to bring so many countries from basic level of infrastructure, electricity development to the next stage. it's almost like that's where the change really needs to happen. And I think the film is, it's its looking at a very different sort of relationship, which is the relationship, in my opinion, between um, individuals in the United States who have a descendancy and an ancestry with Africa, particularly with Wakanda, versus Wakanda as an African nation and its relationship to other African nations on the continent. Um, and it, and it focuses more on this, this transnational relationship, which I find definitely interesting, but there's a side in me that, uh, just didn't quite understand how, like, um, for example, there's really not a discussion of why, um, the border tribe ends up siding with the sort of revolutionary, like, we need to take over the world character and is that because that border tribe who has to i i think i was asking about like why does the border tribe sort of have this much more pastoral way of life they live in these huts they don't have the electricity and technology that is in the Wakandan capital this may be because they're part of the two-face and like is that is that tribe discriminated against and like how how does this monarchy play into kind of whether there is any democratic leadership happening in Wakanda. And to me, all these issues were the things that I was thinking about. Um, and the film really doesn't, it, it's interesting how the film forgets it. Um, which I think is, is something that, um,
0: yeah, I mean, certainly when they, when they make historical films, they have historians on standby to consult and things like that. But I doubt they, with the superhero films, they've got political scientists on hand, you know, um, Although, you know, there is some elements of political science in it, right, you know, in in Civil War, which I was telling you a little bit about, right, we see, like, um, the role the UN has in trying to regulate superheroes, right, and that brings up the rift within the superheroes, right, should we accept governmental regulation or not, and so, I mean, I'm curious if they, they, you know, certain, you know, events take place in the UN and and things like that, so maybe they did have a a poli-sci person on board, and maybe... We'll have to wait for Black Panther two to maybe dive into more, um, you know, more about Wakanda's relationship to the rest of the world, right, and, and their ability to, um, you know, share their resources with humanity, uh, and perhaps be leaders into a new uh, future for humanity and the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
1: Right. I think what we'll is. Lose- Interesting because all I can think about also when you're watching this film is the resource curse and like how did Wakanda not fall into the resource curse and it's almost because Wakanda knows what to do with that resource in a way that other countries don't and usually the reverse it happens where the country that has the resource doesn't necessarily have the human capital and the industrialization to use that resource to its fullest extent and therefore it is extracted to countries who have that ability. Yeah,
0: I mean, the United States gets a little bit of its hands on some vibranium, and we make a shield out of it for this guy to throw around, um, which is cool and all, but, you know, the Wakandans are, you know, leading humanity into a new technological dawn, right? You know, the, the power of vibranium and their technology is pretty um, science fiction compared with, you know, a bouncy shield. But Again, cool, but, you know... It's not leading us to space
1: yeah it's i'm um, like if if because i think of um uh a country like the united kingdom that's sort of in the industrial revolution has resources that assist its industrial revolution to really push forward and that helps its sort of colonization and of wakanda there there there's this discussion of kind of taking over the world Um, in a military way, but there's not a discussion of economic colonization or post-colonization, um, sort of, uh, commercialization in a way that, like, this incredible resource gives them economic power beyond anything we've seen before. Um, and it just, I, I kind of love that Black Panther as a film brings up these issues, uh, and and is and is thoughtful in these various ways because it's it's talking about things in in it when you're able to kind of add elements that are totally foreign you can start to discuss these things pretty interestingly i think wakanda is an entirely foreign idea of, uh you know like cuba is like maybe the closest idea of a country that like doesn't really have many diplomatic, really. I mean, North Korea, but that's a totally another issue. And this is not a North Korea; it's much more of a Cuba. Um, but it's not even close to this. So uh, I, I really enjoyed the film, but I had a very different reaction to it than so many other people I know. And and maybe that's because I I work on 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 African <laughs> issues. Uh, but
0: yes, unlike um, you know so many others around the world you uh think a lot about africa and for you africa is not forgotten right whereas uh, for americans and uh, african americans um you know the 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 interaction of um you know killmonger right i mean he he sees his relationship with the white colonial power right as sort of a slave owner and you know his ancestors were taken from africa right whereas you see right mbutu right the leader of the um the Jabari tribe, right, he, talk, you know, talks to the guy as a colonizer, uh, right, the, the white CIA guy that's there. And so, you know, the, the different relationships, right, you know, how Africans relate to the colonial era versus, you know, African Americans relate to the era of slavery, right, and, and both, um, you know, forms of, um, you know, control by Western nations over people or land of Africa and its resources, Right, you know, especially when you look at the the nature of slavery in the United States as this labor source, and you know, another, you know, it's another kind of plundering of Africa um, for its resources, and, and right, what I thought, you know, one of the, what you brought up, Redis, is the nature of of what about Wakanda's relationship to Africa itself, right? Where you see, you see Killmonger largely steer it into a different way. And right, you know, so that brings up, you know, what you know, what could have, um, you know, what could have Wakanda done to mitigate civil wars and you know, genocides in Africa and things like that, right? How you know, they they've sat behind their little barrier and, and lived their own little world, right? Which, you know, honestly, brings up right the great superhero dilemma, right? And you know, in many ways, the, this fascination with superheroes, right, is people want something and someone to just be able to fix the world and save it, right? And to me. You know the Rwandan genocide was one of those chances maybe where you the West could have fixed something, could have could have done something, and they didn't, and that was you know, disappointing. Um, so all yeah. interesting things happening um, in Wakanda these days. Who knows what, what's next?
1: Yeah, we see the scene where the Wakandan war dogs are uh, saving sort of civilian populations, and it appears a form of a child soldier. That, that part was all in the dark and I got confused. But yeah. um, <laughs> uh, clearly they are kind of going into some of these civil conflicts and protecting individuals in kind of a responsibility to protect sort of way, but they're not doing it through the UN institutions. You know, they're not part of peacekeeping. They're not part of uh, responsibility to protect they're doing it in this like quiet cia feel um which i i think has its own connotations um particularly as it opens up to the world sort of will it, it it seems to definitely care about providing um the the one girl who wants to open up the thing in oakland because she wants to do good for the world which is why she wanted to leave the now king Mm -hmm. with character names but I you know she's talking about like she was able to kind of help people in her position as a war dog Um, so it's it's intriguing that there is sort of this quiet undertone help but like the overt help that they could be offering is not happening and why have they chosen to do that and is it a fear of the colonizers and um, seeing what they did to other countries so Uh, definitely, definitely food for thought. Mm -hmm. So, but as we think about kind of these technologically advanced things, we have decided to do, uh, our space this week for rolling through Reddit. Shall we take a look?
0: Yeah, we both figured, um, with some heavier topics, it would be nice to, um, take a lighter trip through Reddit this week. So, yeah, taking a look here at, um our space, one of the first things I see is a lovely image of uh, the International Space Station in front of the moon, um, which, of course, you know, came under some inadvertent uh, threats uh, this past week, right, thanks to, you know, silly things going on here on Earth, on Earth. Michelle, if you want to add a little more to that, right?
1: Yeah, so uh, <laughs> as um, sort of Narendra Morty, who's uh, head of uh, India, wants to build a space program, um, and, and prove themselves as kind of worthy in this space, this new level of space competition that's happened in the past five to 10 years. Um, they, they, um, was it a missile? No, it's like, they sent something into space.
0: Uh, I don't know the exact technology behind it, but I know they basically destroyed a a satellite.
1: Yeah, um, kind of proving they could do something, but not very well, Um, sort of a brute force tactic. Some of this, in my opinion, probably has to do with uh, proving to the Pakistanis that if they really want to go to nuclear war, the Indians have the technology uh, to shoot down missiles that are coming in, sort of proving uh, proving their military might, which includes sort of the space element. Um, but yeah, it put the International Space Station at risk, which was not a great move.
0: Um, not at all. Um, uh, and you know, speaking of risk, one of the uh, you know interesting space tropes of my childhood, right, was the the impending danger uh, an asteroid could provide to the Earth. Um, and so another post we see, or a couple about I see about, um, are from Japan's uh, asteroid mission, the Hayabusa two. Right. They were able to basically hit an asteroid with um, a probe. It sort of hits it and bounces off. It didn't land. Um, but that's pretty uh, in- cool and intense. Right, I think something interesting, right, this idea of, you know, we've seen asteroid exploration be a thing, right? This idea possibly of, you know, being able to harvest the minerals of asteroids, right? So, you know, is w- w- what will space's resource curse be, um, you know, this time no indigenous populations on asteroids that we know of to um, to inflict the resource curse upon, though, which is good.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a whole a whole other dimension and sort of property of space and territorial rights. That if we can barely figure out what the Arctic is, um, I I can't even fathom how things like asteroids are going to happen in terms of. Um, not only n- international territorial space, of what countries own it, but then what private entities will own upon those national borders, if we even have them. Uh, it's, you know, and I think what's fascinating about space is sort of in this really intriguing time, international communities signed an agreement to not militarize space, which is lucky. Because I think it was a a sense of timing, but it does change sort of if you can't militarize space, then how do you protect borders and properties Um, sort of coming back to to sort of these like basic ideas and monopoly of force um, by countries. And it just adds a whole nother dimension that like I can't, I'm definitely not one of the people who thinks we're actually going to Mars in my lifetime. So I just like can't even fathom this.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's a lot. Any any posts uh, drawing your attention on uh, our space?
1: Yeah, so I'm looking at this picture um of the 27 engines uh, that Falcon Heavy yeah um, which is a five million pounds of thrust at liftoff um, and it makes it the world's most powerful operational r- rocket by a factor of two. Um, I, I mean Falcon Heavy is completely revolutionizing. Sort of how we think about one space travel through a private entity, but two the recyclability of it and and I Elon Musk is a crazy man.
0: Yeah, the, I love the 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 blunt force they apply, right? The the twenty-seven Merlin, really just three Falcon nines strapped together, three times nine. Uh, I can do this much math, you know, as we go on through the podcast, right? There you go, the Falcon heavy twenty-seven. Um it's a lot five million pounds of thrust is a few, are right? you know what they're going to be throwing into space with that? Um, you know, one of the other photos that drew my attention was this lovely um piece of um, the space shuttle Discovery hanging out uh, in its um retirement. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, an interesting vehicle, right? You know, uh, one of the more deadly vehicles for space uh, explorers at this point. So, hopefully. Uh, Elon able to provide, you know, he's, he's back to the capsule, which is interesting, right? It's been a long time since we've had capsule um, flight for American astronauts, so we'll see we'll see what goes on uh, there. Anything else drawing your eye, or shall we carry on?
1: Uh, a lot of this is beautiful pictures, so if you want some beautiful space imagery, um, our space is definitely a place to look. But I'll be honest, this is Beyond my beyond my knowledge and wheelhouse set to really, other than it's absolutely beautiful, but not totally sure what I'm always looking at.
0: Well, then the last one that uh, you brought up, Mars, right? This one, um, you know, I'm uh, those of you who aren't big redditors, uh, you may find smaller used subreddits will be more interesting to you if you filter it um, by, you know, the, maybe the best posts from the past week or so. Um, So right now, looking at the best post of the past week, we have one from six days ago, confirming uh, methane has been found on Mars, right? And though methane can be created from geological processes, uh, most methane on Earth, at least, is produced by life. Uh, So that's kind of cool. I'm always a fan of learning if we have Martian friends or not. Um, So who knows? We'll have to maybe go there ourselves and putz around. You know, that's part of what these recent, you know, uh, Pence's announcement, right? We're doing more moon stuff right part of that is with the goal right of creating a base on the moon to then send and prepare things to mars so who knows michelle i i would actually take um i'll take the under that will definitely make it to mars in our lifetimes um but if you'd like to take the over um we'll we'll settle good terms on it at some point
1: my own sanity is to take the under cuz i just i don't know that's like too too wild for me All right, Nathan, Uh, numbers in the news. Your math hasn't been so great today, but I'm sure you can do this one. What is your number in the news?
0: Well, thankfully, I don't have to do um, any actual math. I just have to read a number. Um, This is that 757 tarantulas uh, were seized by Filipino customs officials recently, Uh, and this has been part of a greater stepped-up effort um, to prevent wildlife smuggling, um, to prevent... um, you know, the smuggling of, uh, of um, you know, looted products from endangered species. Right? I saw a big thing about the largest seizure of pangolin scales, um, which is fantastic because pangolins are wonderful creatures um, and they do not deserve to die for um, the sake of what is largely not useful Western medicine, um, excuse me, Eastern medicine. Um Interestingly, the tarantulas are largely being shipped as pets, so I guess, you know, 757 expectant tarantula owners will be disappointed, but otherwise, um, good job by the Filipino government to track down these um, illegally uh, transferred uh, animals.
1: Yeah, I think this is a a good story coming out of the Philippines, where... (laughs) I'm curious if their improvement in customs security has more to do with Duterte's war on drugs than it does have to do with wildlife trafficking I'm going to hope it has to do with wildlife trafficking
0: yeah I forget exactly how they um, how they were able to discover them um, yeah, they were in gift wrapped boxes uh, so yeah interesting um, Oh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, oh, my mistake. Okay, they were being flown in from Poland. My apologies, and they were not leaving. Um, they were not leaving the Philippines. They were coming to the Philippines. Um, so that's probably good. We don't want to infest another island. Um, with the wrong kind of stuff. Uh, a la, you know, there's too many rabbits in Australia. Um, so my back, I had that backwards. But still, you know, part of the greater um, its efforts to clamp down on this. Uh, problem across the world Speaking of problems um, You know I sometimes worry about The growing wealth divide uh, In our world and Michelle you have um, An interesting Figure to talk about
1: Okay my figure is 27.7 billion dollars Growing at a speed of 147 dollars per second This is the wealth of Brunei Sultan Hassanal Bolkiah well kai uh-huh. it is um he is the 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 leader of the small uh small nation of brunei which is on one of the islands shared by indonesia and i believe malaysia um brunei is in the news this week um for passing law that makes um certain activities by the lbtg lgbtq community illegal, um, including, um, uh, making gay sex punishable by stoning to death. Now Brunei has had the death penalty since I, I believe seeing like 19, uh, it's had it a long time. It hasn't actually carried out, um, the death penalty since the fifties, but this new legislation is, um, putting that at risk. It's a majority Muslim country. And so this is sort of, uh, a, a take on some of, uh, that interpretation of of uh, those laws. Now, what's fascinating, actually, about this is so the Sultan of Brunei is one of the richest men on earth, twenty seven point seven billion dollars net worth. And what the international community is doing in response to this legislation is pushing governments one to sort of do the usual diplomatic um, tracking of kind of calling for them to change it. But the other thing they're doing is asking individuals to boycott. Um, So the Sultan of Brunei is actually the owner of several major hotels across the world. uh, The Dorchester Group, which includes the Dorchester London, 45 Park Lane, the Beverly Hills Hotel in Mm. Los Angeles, Hotel Bel Air, um, and hotels across Milan, Rome, Paris, um, etc., and so um, Ellen DeGeneres is involved, George Clooney is involved, and well, this is...
0: It, George, George is always up in any kind of uh, thing, isn't he? he?
1: He really is indeed, and I think um, this is sort of a new... Um, so George Clooney uh, I, is uh, one of the co-founders of the Century, which is where I work, and it's really this new philosophy that says... Diplomacy only works to, for so long, and actually hitting wallets is, is hit important. Them
0: where it, yep, you got to hit them where it hurts. That's absolutely correct.
1: Financial right. pressure. So you have an individual who's incredibly rich um, through these hotels and other, obviously other business interests, um, and that the the consumers pushing their interest and saying, we disagree with this legislation, and therefore we're going to respond in this way, can be have a major impact on changing interactions individual's behavior. So this was a really interesting example where a very small country made a specific policy choice, and that people are therefore boycotting major Western hotels. I mean, um, we've certainly passed um, some of those in Los Angeles before on our drives. And this is is sort of an interesting, we'll see what happens with the legislation. um, But Sort of a it's a unique spin on things, so we'll see hopefully they'll repeal the legislation, and things will be okay. but um, certainly I like how it's starting to empower individuals in a way that I think waiting on governments to work things out diplomatically is not always well, a,
0: yeah. yeah, I mean it's certainly it's empowering uh, at least in this case, right I mean some of these you know quote unquote individuals. Right, are Richard Branson, Elton John, George Clooney, right? All all individuals of fabulous wealth, um, but also a wealth of political and and social influence in some ways. Um, And so, you know, as we see this growing wealth divide in the world, right? Because again, your number, right, which brought us all under this, was the the incredible wealth of this leader. Um, And so, you know, it it brings us into you know what will be the role of of wealth on both sides of the political spectrum right in the 21st century right the power of people to influence um, elections both with um, you know i mean how many people vote for something because someone they an influencer uh, and stars that they follow tells them to do it right you know we see in many ways right the power of trump in the 2016 election was mobilizing a, a rural vote uh, largely among religious conservatives, right? And how many of those people were motivated to vote through their institutions of religion, just like people are influenced to vote because, you know, Taylor Swift registered as a Democrat and things like that, right? So it, yeah. to me, it's very interesting, right, the, the how democracy is continuing to evolve and be influenced by the culture uh, of the world.
1: Yeah, I remember the rumors of Oprah 2020 and being like, why not? There's a sense of... Um, that individuals have so much star power um that as as we move forward sort of these are people that are going to start to shape policy in a way that as long as long as they have thoughtful advisors thinking some of this through i don't necessarily see a problem with it on a small scale and this being a really clear example um it's you know, the action by these actors is pushing the Labour Party in the United Kingdom to have to kind of think of a solution to how the UK is going to respond to that. I think the pressure works.
0: Oprah for president would certainly be interesting. Um, if nothing else, for the, the sweet memes that it would probably spawn, um, you know, you get a democracy, you get a democracy, everyone gets a democracy. <laughs> um you know speaking of of Oprah and the you know the idea of sharing uh, and maybe you know the the Uber elite will begin to share their wealth uh, with the rest of the world right you know, through charities through you know this the new wave of the philanthropists um, you know there are people who are f- working for a more wholesome world so Michelle, why don't you tell us um, another way in which our world is getting a little more wholesome uh, with a wholesome happening all
1: right so this uh this week in a repeal of its 2015 declaration the mormon church uh, the church of uh, latter-day saints is allowing the children of same-sex couples to be baptized within the church and it won't expel same-sex marriages from the church so that those members can maintain their position in the community um, uh from what i was reading this seems to be pressure of how the views are changing in the united states towards same-sex couples um and so i i see this as like a really good development uh you know i think many of these institutions have a long way to go but the idea that people are not getting punished for who they are and their children aren't getting punished for who their parents are, I think is, is starting the, you know, Francis's infamous moment where uh, the, the doctrine is starting to move away from, from sort of draconian punishment and towards figuring out acceptance, which again is really slow, but these these are shining moments where I, I see the tides turning and it makes me Pretty, pretty
0: pleased. Yes, I um, I saw a great webcomic that was sort of riffing on the idea that you know in the fifteen hundreds, being left-handed was conflated with being you know living a hedonist lifestyle and being possessed by the devil and whatnot, and how you know religions have eventually accepted our left-handed mutants. Um, well,
1: they're left-handed
0: too. <laughs> so <I'm> so <laughs> um. You know, I think another. I mean, the interesting thing about the Mormons, um, you know, to relate it back to uh, your number from the news is that you know, in, in terms of the wealthiest religious organizations in the world, they're number one um, oh. at at a, at a worth of thirty five billion dollars, making them a whole five million more than the Catholic Church of that, the Vatican. Now, if you if you add up the Catholic Church of the Vatican and Austria and or excuse me, Australia, uh, Germany, you know, you're going to get a, a greater net worth. Um, and to give you some context, right? In terms of charitable foundations, again, speaking about this idea of of uh, the ultra rich to be, you know, philanthropic. Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates, forty two million dollars, and then the foundation founded by the IKEA family, thirty six billion, right? So the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, roughly the, milita- the, the the sorry, the monetary spending power of um, of the IKEA Foundation. Wow. interesting uh, just things to think about
1: yeah and i think all of these are you know for um for for people who vote on religious grounds these sort of signals are are going to help sort of tone down and and really make make space for change um and we see that mayor pete who i think is becoming this like uh, phenomena sort of overnight um Doing his last name would do it injustice. Um so I'm gonna go with most commentators to say may or Pete, but um an openly gay candidate for the president of the United States. I just I think these things are um on the on the up and up for for where they were even ten, twenty years ago.
0: Yeah, uh certainly interesting, right? I think um I, at times in my life, have been rather unforgiving and pessimistic about the role of religion in in humanity and in history, and um, it's refreshing to see um, the power of religion being used to make the world a more wholesome place.
1: And with that, Nathan, are you going to share our funny fact finish, which this one cracks me up so much, it's so great.
0: Yeah, I thought this was an interesting one. Um, two uh, twin brothers in Brazil um, have both been forced by a judge uh, to pay child support for a paternity test. After, unsurprisingly, the test came back inconclusive, indicating you know a positive result for both men. Right, that they were both uh, fathers of the child. And interestingly enough, right, this child—it's um, not that the brothers are splitting it, but they're both paying. The um, the required amount. So this kid is getting double uh, the child support, uh, which is you know good for him.
1: Well, what it means is that if if one of the twins admitted that it was them, the only thing that would happen is the other twin would stop paying. They would continue to pay. So it's this like kind of ridiculous twin moment thing where they just like there's the, it's just. They're both going to pay
0: it, and no one's going to surrender. Yeah, you know, twin rivalry to the end, I suppose. You know, there's, I think, two kinds of twins in the world. You know, those that are uh, inseparable and, and you know, marry the same other pair of twins. Um, and then those twins who are, you know, rivals um, and have used their twinhood to, you know, push themselves to be uh, the best twin they can be. So interesting, right? Both brothers... Poning up for child support. Um, so double support for that child and his mother, which, you know, in Brazil they may need, given, um, you know, the recent economic downturn there. Uh, and who knows what Bolsonaro is going to do to that place.
1: Well, we'll leave that for another day because it's supposed to be our funny fact finish. finish and so yes,
0: finishing gonna,
1: up. <laughs> we're going to finish with that um, and hope to uh, see you guys soon.